0: and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spirius Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Cathay Y.N. Smith, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Montana Blewett School of Law. We will discuss her article, Creative Destruction, Copyright's Fair Use Doctrine, and the Moral Right of Integrity, which is published in the Pepperdine Law Review. So welcome to the show, Cathay.
1: Thank you, Brian. I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on. um, Because, you know, we talked about this paper a little bit on Twitter. And I got to say, like, Vera is a special interest of mine. And I got to like, send out a big thank you to you as well. Because while reading your paper, I came up with an idea for a paper I think I have to write myself. Um, So you totally inspired that. And um and it's a great, it's a great paper. I really like it. I think it's really creative. And it was like something that i had been thinking about. And I'm so glad that you wrote it first because I think you did a better job than I would have.
1: Oh my gosh, Brian, thank you. And I, I'm honored um, to inspire your next work. Awesome.
0: <laughs> well, so, so for listeners who might not be Vera enthusiasts or moral rights nerds, like the two of us. I wonder if you could start out by talking a little bit about the concept of moral rights in relation to copyright and specifically the right of integrity that you talk about in the paper. Like, what are moral rights? What is the right of integrity? Where do they come from and what are they intended to do?
1: Right. Um, so, moral rights generally, they're described. Uh, as as rights that protect an author's personality, uh, an author's honor, and and some people even say are there to protect an author's soul in their work. Um, Oftentimes it's it's described as non-economic rights, right? So unlike copyright, which allows an author or, or the copyright owner to sort of collect licensing fees for the reproduction or use of their copyrighted work, Um, Moral rights actually are independent from the copyright or even the property rights in an author's work And so for instance, um, an author can retain moral rights in their work Even after they've sold the physical copy of the work and sometimes even after they've sold sort of the copyright They've assigned the copyright to the work Um, They originated in in Europe Um, A lot of people trace it to France Although I have definitely read a couple articles that, that have found actually some moral rights language in cases earlier than that in, in German courts. Um, but, but generally, um, right trace it to, to Europe and then have since been adopted by, by countries, both civil as well as common law countries. Um, moral rights typically will protect um, the right to, to attribution. And so the uh, author's right to be named as the creator of a work, Um, they can protect, in some instances, can protect the right of disclosure and withdrawal. So an author can say, um, I want my work now removed from the public. Um, And also the right of integrity is also another very common moral right in a lot of countries moral right legislation, which gives an author the right to prevent sort of the distortion, the the alteration, and sometimes the disparagement of their work. And this, of course, is even after that author has transferred or sold sort of the physical copy of the work as well as the copyright of the work. And I guess when, when we talk about um, Vera, that is the U.S.'s sort of adoption of moral rights under federal law here in the U.S., which is much more limited than 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 European moral rights legislation.
0: Well, so the classic sort of statement of moral rights, or sort of the classic sort of articulation of the need or the obligation to protect moral rights comes under the burden convention and you know sort of like as you say articulated by france and many other european countries i mean i wonder if you could give some examples of what that would mean in practice specifically in relation to the right of integrity which is really the focus of your paper like in a sort of european kind of burn convention yeah kind of conception like what would that look like what 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 would it mean for an artist to assert a moral right of integrity, and, and who's entitled under the Berne Convention to assert those kind of rights in the first place?
1: Right. Uh, so um, it, if we're talking about a broader, more expansive sort of moral right of integrity, which is attempting to protect um, a work from mutilation modification that will harm the reputation or honor of an original artist, um, some really fun examples arise in Europe. Um, but again, I want to clarify that this is this is under a, a more expansive view of moral right of integrity, which the U.S. didn't ultimately adopt. But um, moral right of integrity could potentially, for instance, uh, prevent a homeowner—and this was a case in Germany—can can prevent a homeowner from hiring a second artist to uh, paint clothing uh, over uh, um, the nudes in a mural in that owner's own house. Um, it can potentially prevent, and this happened in Sweden, right? It can prevent, for instance, the, even the display of an artist's work next to highly offensive or highly pornographic photographs. Um, it can prevent um, an artist's work from being cut up into pieces and, and, and sold separately, right? Against, against that artist's will, And so in Europe, the right of integrity is much more expansive in that it doesn't just prevent a property owner from physically mutilating their own property. It actually can also prevent this decontextualization of an artist's work where perhaps the placement of that work or um, you know the, the potential the partially covering of that work could harm uh, an author's and artist's reputation and, and I and I keep using author and artist interchangeably because the more expansive more right of integrity allows not just an, a a visual art artist to raise a, raise a violation of the right of integrity but also authors of literary works um, musicians songwriters of musical works. Um, Outside of the U.S., the moral right of integrity generally protects much more works of authorship than just visual art.
0: Mm. Well, so maybe you could talk then a little bit about how these values are realized or maybe not entirely realized under U.S. law, specifically in the Visual Artist Rights Act or VERA of of 1990 sort of like what exactly is vera what was the context in which it was enacted sort of what what does it actually do In relation to the right of integrity, both in terms of what it protects and how it protects it, and sort of, and and, and maybe even kind of in a broader, kind of more conceptual sense, like what's the relationship between the kinds of things that Vera does and the kinds of things that the Copyright Act does more generally? In other words, why is it that Vera is sort of a unique element? of the Copyright Act. How is it different from other aspects of the Copyright Act?
1: Right. Um, so when the, the, so the U.S. adopted Vera under its obligations um, under the Byrne Convention. And, and during that time, there was a lot of pushback for uh, the adoption of any sort of moral rights in the United States for different reasons. Um, right. One of the reasons was that we, I think we have a very strong tradition of free expression, uh, First Amendment right. Another big reason is this idea, this this private property right um, that we have. That that Vera definitely does right whittle away at um, the right to destroy, right, the right to mutilate a piece of property that maybe you own. Um, and and so how it would apply would be: I can purchase a, a piece of art, and I, as the property owner, could potentially be prevented from uh, doing what I want with that piece of art, even though, right, under private property law, I own it, but the author still retains this sort of moral right of integrity to potentially prevent me from drawing a mustache on on, write a portrait, or uh, somehow even even creating, right, uh, if we're talking about more expansive outside of the US, even, even potentially exhibiting it, in an exhibit that the original artist finds offensive, um, but there was, th- th- but ultimately the U.S. did did adopt Vera um, and adopted sort of a much more limited, much more limited um, set of moral rights, including moral right of attribution, moral right of integrity, and then this sort of stepchild of moral right of integrity, which was. Uh, the moral right to prevent the destruction of works of recognized stature. Moral rights are considered much more limited in the U.S. because uh, not only did the U.S. only adopt sort of these, these couple of moral rights, but also it only applies to one type of work, right? Work that's called the works of visual art or work of visual art. It includes... Other types of authorship, literary, dramatic, musical, audiovisual works. Um, it also only protects single copies or limited edition copies of these visual artworks. Um, and visual artworks has a very uh, strict definition of being paintings, drawings, prints, sculptures, or still photograph images produced for exhibition purposes. And also, there are a lot of different exceptions in the US. Some of them written into the Rara statutes, Some of them interpreted by case law, including how uh, the work of visual art does not include d- applied art. Right, does not include anything that is a work for hire. Uh, courts have said, and one court specifically has said, also can't. It's it, site-specific art is excluded from it. It has to be eligible separately eligible for copyright law. And so the U.S. adopted a f- very much more narrow set of rights. Um, for the right of integrity. And I'm trying to see, and I think you also were looking at how is it different from from Copyright Act? And one of the big differences, um, Copyright Act is typically considered an economic right um, and applies to sort of intangible works, whereas at least the Visual Artists' Rights Act, it has been interpreted To apply to the destruction of a physical copy of the work, um, which copyright doesn't typically protect, right? Copyright is separate that from the physical property right to a piece of work, um, whereas Visual Artists Rights Act still attaches to that physical copy of the work.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, so your paper gets at a really, I think, interesting and provocative tension and Vera which I honestly haven't really seen that many people engage with previously which is one of the reasons that I found your paper really interesting and and exciting and, and specifically what you're talking about is the tension between the Vera right of integrity and and the right of fair use or the fair use doctrine, you know, often considered sort of the most kind of important or sort of fundamental exception to the scope of, of copyright protection. And of course, Vera is subject, Vera rights are subject to fair use, but there's some question about what that means. So, I mean, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what the fair use doctrine is intended to accomplish, and why exactly you think the fair use doctrine is, you know, at least potentially in tension with the um, with the protection of the right of integrity.
1: Yes. Um, and so the, the way I like to describe the purpose of, of fair use doctrine, whether I don't know if everyone's going to agree with this, but it's to help find sort of a balance um, between right, um, an author's right in their expressive work that they've created, as well as uh, this, the, the, the public's right or a secondary artist's or author's right. Uh, to use that original work to create something further, right? To create something, uh, create their own new expression, for instance. Um, and, and the way I, I look at fair use is, is it's, it's using these four factors um, that are in Section 107 of the Copyright Act in order to sort of attempt to achieve that sort of balance. And, and fair use, right, is considered one of the main First Amendment safeguards that has been written into the Copyright Act. Um, and, and has, I think, uh, been used to to allow secondary authors from using original works and creating new meanings, creating parodies of it, uh, creating, creating really cool secondary works that comment on or criticize the original works. Um, there's definitely this tension between fair use and the right of integrity, um, and it's not we see this sort of similar tension I I would think when, when we talk about sort of the right of derivatives an authors right to create derivatives as well as, as well as fair use. And that, that, that is this, um, what is the integrity right meant to do? And what does fair use allow, right? this, if, if, if the right of integrity is the right to prevent, right? Modification, distortion, or mutilation of a piece of work. So in other words, and some have described it as safeguarding that original artist's meaning or message in that work, then the secondary use of that work to, uh, to, as a parody, as a satire, or criticize, or, 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 or using it in a transformative way is going to somehow alter that author's meaning and message, right? To, to transform it is going to be to distort the original work but it's precisely that transformation that that parody that commoner criticism that that would allow and give rise to this fair use defense as we as we understand it and interpret it now and so a lot of people have looked at these this conflict and felt that either um, you know, Fair use should not be applied to the right of integrity because it's going to completely gut the right of integrity and not give it any meaning or the fact that this, there's this incompatibility should uh, perhaps mean that we should uh, get rid of the right of integrity because there's no way to properly balance it with fair use now. Um, and so one of the reasons I wanted to write this paper was, well, was this really fun conflict that I wanted to explore. Right. You have this carve out in the statute for fair use, and yet it appears, at least on its face, to have this conflict, to be incompatible. And so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to explore, right? How, how can we contemplate working these two doctrines and together to make sure we are trying to strike a proper balance?
0: Mm. Well, so I'll confess that I'm one of those people who was kind of always under the impression that at the end of the day, the fair use exception to the right of integrity kind of had to render it almost meaningless. But in your piece, you you give some examples of how the right of integrity can play out in practice and suggest some ways in which there might be still considerable room for balancing between these two uh, kind of policy values. So, I mean, I wonder if you could talk about sort of how you sort of conceptualize the, um, the realization of the right of integrity in practice, and how you think we ought to think about fair use and the kind of values represented by fair use in relation to the right of integrity, sort of in action, as it were.
1: Right. right. And so, so when I um, when I wrote this, I wanted to make sure that um, I captured this analysis uh, broader than right what is currently protected under uh the Visual Artists Rights Act. At the time I was writing this paper, uh, the, the US Copyright Office was doing a, a public study on whether or not current uh, moral rights, Visual Artists Rights Act basically properly protects the moral rights of authors in the United States. And and for years now, there has been vocal uh, uh, push, I guess, <laughs> a bo- vocal push to, to increase, expand moral rights in the US. Um, and I thought it was important for me to not just address how fair use could work with the current application of Visual Artists Rights Act, but also if moral rights were to be expanded in the U.S., how fair use, the four factors as we currently apply and concede them, could potentially limit sort of a more expansive moral rights um, of integrity. And so, so the three categories that I ended up looking at were, um, this first, which was, which I call decontextualization, um, and inspired by the, the, the fearless girl, uh, sculpture that uh, artists placed right in front of Charging Bull, um, right, completely reinterpreting Charging Bull, Charging Bull, I guess the artist, uh, when, when he created it and when he actually put it in, in New York, right, guerrilla style, it was an it was supposed to represent an uplifting message, right, this, This, uh, it was during a downturn in Wall Street and it was supposed to be uplifting American people, we can do this together. Um, And then 20 years later, we have fearless girls right in front of it that completely reinterprets the charging bull. It gives it, shines a kind of a menacing light on the charging bull. While not physically mutilating, distorting, modifying charging bull, it definitely modified, distorted the message of charging bull. I wanted to make, that was the first category that I wanted to discuss, because even though under our current Visual Artist Rights Act, that would not be considered a violation of right to integrity because of our public presentation example, other more expansive um, moral rights regimes, including the one that I described um, in Sweden, right, that would potentially be considered a violation. So I wanted to start with something that that we felt comfortable with saying, okay, I'm comfortable applying fair use to something like this, where the original is not really distorted or touched or physically interacted with in in any way. Um, The second category that I wanted to discuss was this impermanent temporary modification, distortion or mutilation, which um, I used an example from Canada, which was um,
0: the, the, the case
1: case where, I think it was
0: the Michael Snow one, wasn't yes, it? Yes,
1: thank you. Yes, I couldn't remember the name. Yeah, thanks. Um, where where he he created a sculpture of geese uh, hung in a mall, and the mall decided over the holiday season they were going to tie these bright red ribbons on the necks of the ge of, of the geese, um, and Michael Snow claimed that that was right a violation of the his moral right of integrity, that impermanent distortion. While in the U.S. Uh, may not be considered a violation of the moral right integrity, was considered a violation of the moral right integrity in Canada. And and if the U.S. were to expand moral rights to encompass more than just single copy Visual Artist Rights Act, that would potentially be the type of um, violation that we would be looking at um, if, if for instance, we're talking about uh, moral rights protecting music. Um, And then the last one, I think, was, was probably the hardest one. Um, just because we, I think it, it, everybody, oh, maybe almost everybody, but the, the idea of a, of a original piece of art being distorted or changed or partially erased, I think, I think naturally just puts a rock in everyone's stomach, right? A, a great piece of art that is no longer the way it used to be. Um, but I wanted to make sure that I also addressed how fair use can be applied to Uh, instances, which um, I I use the term creative destruction um, in this law review article, um, how the four factors can be used to analyze creative destructions of works where it's an original piece, a limited edition piece that is physically mutilated by somebody in order to send a new message or create new meaning.
0: Mm. Mm. Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about like sort of how that works in practice. Like in particular, I think the, the fearless girl piece Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. pretty well known. Like, you know, if you were to look at that through kind of an American copyright fair use doctrine kind of lens, you know, like, how would you, how would you analyze that particular work from a fair use perspective in relation to the right of integrity and sort of what kind of what kind of light do you think that kind of fair use values can shed on how we ought to think about that particular kind of intervention
1: hey. um so under charging bull in the charging bull and fearless girl scenario right we if I were to apply the four fair use factors as they're currently analyzed and as they're currently conceived, right, I would be looking at the four factors under Section 107 of the Copyright Act. Um, a lot of people have said that that at least over the last decade, um, the most important factor um, seems to be looking at the purpose and character of the use. And in this case, it would be sort of the purpose and character of, of, of the secondary law artist, the fearless girl, um, and, and how it may have transformed um, the meaning, original meaning of Charging Bull, making it something new by right? making it a new work, giving it new meaning. And here, um, it seems pretty obvious that, that the fearless girl, by placing fearless girl, um, ha- I can't remember, it was five or seven feet in front of um, Charging Bull, completely transformed the meaning of charging bull, right? It, it, it almost updated the meaning of charging bull, highlighting this issue that, that we are talking about now and need to talk about more, which is the inequality of women, including inequality of gender, gender inequality on, on, on Wall Street. Um, and so sort of like um, that famous case, uh, right? SunTrust where um randall wrote the wind done gone transforming the meaning in the original gone with the winds um this is the same i would argue that this did the same thing fearless girl transformed the message and meaning of charging bull um it created this public dialogue between two sculptures um and I think that sort of public dialogue is, is important, right? And it is one of the purposes that we have fair use, to use an original work in order to create new meaning in public dialogue. Um, and then going through the rest of the factors, right, whether the work is the nature of the copyrighted work, right, how much was used, and then the effect on the use of the market, I think we see that if we were to take the traditional four factors of fair use, the way that courts have been applying them in copyright cases, we would find that this use had it been a violation of a right of integrity would be considered a fair use. And I think that would be the correct, right. The conclusion in this case as well.
0: Well, so maybe you could talk about some of the other categories that you've mentioned. I, I I'm particularly fond of the Michael Snow example, because as it happens before I went to law school, uh, I was, well, I'm still very involved in the experimental film community. And My- Michael Snow is actually a very notable, is a very notable experimental filmmaker in addition to being a-, a sculptor. And interestingly, many of his films draw on material created by other people in a sort of sardonic or ironic kind of way, recontextualizing and reusing works that were created uh, prior to his intervention. And so it's kind of interesting to think about him objecting uh, using the work of uh, using the right of integrity in this context. And so I I kind of wonder how you think about that particular complaint and how it was sort of uh, understood by the Canadian court and whether you agree with their sort of resolution of, of the question.
1: Right. That's, that is interesting. Um, Right. So, so I, I, that sort of changes him as a character in my mind, knowing that that side um, of his work. Um, But, but so the, the Michael Snow, uh, where he's suing Eaton Center for tying these big ribbon, ribbon right, red ribbons on on the geese. Um, I thought it was interesting. Um, the the surrounding facts I thought were kind of important in that case. When we're talking about fair use, like what was the reason that this this mall decided to tie these red ribbons onto the geese? Were they trying to send you know a new political message versus a social message? Um, and so apparently during that time, um, the, 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 the shopping center, they were planning for its decoration in anticipation of, of holiday shopping season. And so in addition to tying these red ribbons on the necks of, of the, the sculptures, they also created this whole advertising campaign around Michael Snow's, uh, be geese, including creating posters, shopping bags, banners, um, right. All centered around, uh, Michael Snow's geese with, uh, with big red ribbons tied around their necks. Um, And so when I looked at this situation, first again, according to legislative history, um, this was one example that was used to talk about what uh, the public presentation exception would carve out from a violation of right of integrity. So according to legislative history, it sounds like this, the public presentation exception, would not, would make it so that this particular action in the US on a would not be considered a right of integrity because it's, it's, it was temporary. Um, uh, but, but when I was looking at this case, I didn't 100% get to the conclusion that this would be, had it been a violation in the US and had we applied the four fair use factors that this would be considered fair use, right? What message was the mall trying to send? Um, To me, it seemed like a purely commercial uh, advertising campaign, which we know uh, often leans away from fair use under the four fair use factors. Um, And once you determine that perhaps the original, the character of the use was not transformative, was purely commercial, then as we often see, the other fair use factors end up leaning away from fair use. And so if we had gotten to this analysis, I'm not positive this would have ultimately come down as being a fair use of Michael Snow's work. So I, I, mean, I
0: so I found this particular example really interesting, right? Because it struck me that it's like, yeah, okay, the mall's use of the geese seems like it was pretty asinine. But I could totally imagine, say, you know, Jeff Koons or Richard Prince producing like... Michael Snow geese with ribbons, and basically like lampooning Michael Snow as kind of this sanctimonious Canadian artist and like making fun of what he's doing by putting red ribbons around the geese's neck I mean would that be a fair use, and if it wouldn't be, would that be a problem i that I, and I love that question because
1: it it's been it's this idea of right if, if the same under the same actions right, well first of all it gets to that gets to the fame factor right the fame question um, that a lot of my students like to, like to dig into when we're when we're talking about fair use um, who gets to win in fair use cases and and who gets who loses in fair use cases and has it does it have anything to do with right uh, uh, how great an attorney or maybe an artist can craft a new message meaning and intent of their secondary use versus maybe an artist who does not have as much money to hire uh, an attorney who can craft the most beautiful intent message meaning of what they were trying to do with an original work. Um, But also, um, right, the intent of the secondary use matters, but also the expression, right, the expression that is created through that intent, I think also equally. Matters. I think looking solely at the intent of what I was trying to do with an original work, right? I can come up with any intention. Uh, I can uh, I can say that I meant to express a message of um, a political message, an anti-whatever message. Um, and yet, if the work that I created does not have does not express a new message or meaning, right? Should it be considered transformed for the purpose of the first factor of fair use? I do think fair use sees this, right? Fair use sees this problem when we're talking about just the normal copyright infringement um, cases. I think judges have had to attempt to uh, read into the meaning of the secondary user, but also look at the the underlying expressive content to see if it does indeed, in fact, create new message and meaning. And I, 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 it seems like there's not always um, it's not always a slam dunk case for for the, the argument and I think I've gone off on what your specific question was <laughs> I got excited <laughs> about I got excited about the the description part which I always found really interesting which is like if you have a really good meaning interpretation and description in a court case of what you meant to do with your secondary work, are you more likely to win a fair use decision?
0: Um, I mean, I guess part of it is like, you know, in, in applying the fair use doctrine, should we be author centric hmm. in the lens or reader centric in the lens?
1: Can we be both? What, what do we think about attempting to be both author as well as reader-centric, right? We can't, I don't think it's always fair, just because of some of the issues I I guess I just went off on, right? It's not always fair to be always author-centric, right? Secondary user-centric, because sometimes that can come down to how well you can describe what you're doing and artists aren't always the best at putting their intent or meaning or message into words. Um, and sometimes I would, I would imagine that it's a good attorney who's really trying to interpret what an author or artist meant to do, um, at, at the same time, right. If we're just purely work centric, then we have this problem of saying, of, of judging art, um, right. Of saying, well. This work, who cares? The, the artist, the, the original author, secondary author probably didn't even mean to create a new message and meaning, and yet I read message and meaning and everything. And so I, I, I would say maybe get a, maybe we could apply a balance in fair use where we're looking at, at
0: both. Mm, mm. Well, Well, mean it seems like this middle category is in some respects, the hardest one to sort of cash out precisely because of these competing speech values mm-hmm. that you're talking about and like sort of who controls the meeting. But there's a third category, which really goes to something, you know, much more absolute, which is sort of like the this, the destruction mm-hmm. of works of authorship. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit as well, because I, I mean, I, I think that it's actually... For me, a really fascinating kind of aspect of the right of integrity, and one that is also hard to sort of cash out or understand how we ought to think about it, but maybe for slightly different reasons.
1: Right. Um, So the third category um, was that the this permanent mutilation of an original or limited edition works, and these are this is currently under Visual Artists Rights Act the US, this is what is typically protected under the right of integrity. And to me, I think this one was the hardest. And one of the main reasons was I love, I love art. Um, And the idea of a piece that I potentially would, would love and enjoy being permanently mutilated. um, I think I think that does just, that made me uncomfortable. And I think it probably makes a lot of people uncomfortable to imagine that. At the same time though, um, there is value, right? And and, um, there's value in works and potentially original works from being mutilated or modified to create new message and meaning. And sometimes that message and meaning can only be expressed by mutilating the original work or a limited edition of the original work to send that sort of message. Um, And so in this section, I sort of devote quite a bit of it to talking about examples of this, right? Where the destruction, the mutilation, the distortion of the original work is what sends the message versus just taking a copy or a digital copy of it and making those changes. And I do think that this destruction can be important in sending political messages and sending social messages and often sending artistic messages um, and, and looking at, right, does this then comfortably fit within the four factors of fair use? And I don't want to say that it comfortably fits within the four factors of fair use, but I, I think um, it can, you, there's a way to contemplate how To creatively use the four factors in order to determine whether this secondary destruction or secondary modification um, furthers the social benefit of creating a new message or new expression.
0: Mm. Well, I'm, I wonder if you could talk about that briefly in the context of a few of the examples that you present in the paper. Like, I'm s- specifically thinking of the de Kooning-Rauschenberg relationship. Um, also, the, uh, the what was it, the Goya, I think, uh, prints that were altered. Yeah. Um, and then finally the five points walkoff case which I find absolutely fascinating and really obviously quite quite timely is one of the few recent um, articulations of Vera in a really interesting context so in each of those cases there is arguably a quote-unquote destruction yeah. of a work of authorship mm-hmm. sort of are they all the same or should we think about them differently
1: um I I, I said- Think about them a little bit differently, um, because a, the a lot of the the examples that I have in this section, um, including right the the, the Chapman brothers, um, they the Goya Chapman brothers, as well as their their series "One Day You Will No Longer Be Loved," which used other original pieces, um, uh, as well as Erase de Kooning, Those to me were mutilations. they were distortions. they were modifications. Um, they, they weren't destructions of the work, but that they were meant to create something new. And so they weren't total burning down a sculpture, right? Although burning down a sculpture could be an interesting performance, performance art. But um, they, they, they created a new piece that they then therefore exhibited as their own piece, as their own work. Um, and so the, the the case, right, the Chapman brothers, um, they continue to to shock the world when they purchase, right, when they start, when they purchase these, these original copies or limited series, for instance, the Goya uh, Disasters of War, uh, very mint condition, it was described as mint condition, a limited edition prints, um, and decided to paint sort of clown faces on the images of agonizing people um, in, in these images in order to send the message of, right, the inadequacy of art as protest or their Chapman Brothers, their, their series, One Day You Will No Longer Be Loved, was similar. They took 19th century portraits by unknown artists, unknown subjects, and then decided to alter them. And their message was to highlight society's attitude to the past as irrelevant and not worth remembering. Um, we know that that the erased de Kooning drawing also shocks the world. Um, when Rauschenberg took two months to erase uh, a de Kooning piece that de Kooning actually sounds like he, he actually picked and chose to give to Rauschenberg in order to create this new uh, expression, right the message that he wanted uh, to send was that the new art might be about its own failure to achieve greatness. Um, It's impotent rebellion against heroic past, right? Art is about its own destruction. Um, And so would these pieces fall comfortably under the four factors of fair use? Maybe, right, these are, we know that the first factor under over the last decade has become the most important factor oftentimes that courts looked at did they send an artist, a new artistic message in this sort of creative mutilation, creative destruction of these pieces? Yes, right? they, they've sent a new message through this creative distortion of the pieces. Once we know that there's a transformative use, we know that the secondary, the second, the, the, the second factor, whether the original works were expressive created, creative isn't as important anymore. We know that it's not as important anymore that they used the entire work from the original author. I think the most uncomfortable fit in right of integrity and a fair use is this fourth factor, right? Which is the market harm to their works, right? What do we mean about market harm to their works? If we're talking about the market harm to their copyright to the works, this destruction doesn't really do anything to that. In fact, it probably makes it more valuable, right? The original work is gone. Now, the only way you can see it is if you have right, a, a, a reproduction of the work and potentially increases the market value of reproductions or the copyright to this mutilate, original mutilated work. At the same time, right, I, I do think that this fourth factor under this category of works is probably the least comfortable fit, but does not mean that um, it can't be creatively used to sort of apply to these right of integrity cases. I know you asked about the five points decision. Um, The five points decision I do bring up um, in the article, um, not just because it's sort of the most recent and most high profile recent um, moral rights decision, um, but it's interesting to think of, right? What if the developer did say, well, I meant to create a new meaning by whitewashing the, you know, five points street art. I meant to send a new message by doing that, right? How do we, how do we divide cases? How do we draw the line between cases where it's an artist or an author attempting to send a political, artistic or social message versus It's somebody who wants to build a new apartment building in a place that's inconveniently is occupied by art um, and now is coming up with a reason for its destruction. And I think that's where it's important to not just look at authors' meaning, but also readers' reader's interpretation as well, Um, balancing the two, as courts have done in various cases in the past, to figure out right what what is there a new message is there is there the socially benefit work extra additional secondary work that has been created from this violation of the right of integrity
0: i mean i will say though in especially in the walkoff case i mean i can't help but feel like you know f- fuck you is a message
1: <laughs> uh, from from yeah yes um in a way right i he, although he didn't do it until the preliminary injunction was um, denied, right? Um, and I, I would think maybe that he knew that any sort of damages he would suffer in that case would pale in comparison to how much more he would have to spend to preserve sort of five points and then attempt to build a hundred-story glass-clad modern apartment building on that site. Um, and so maybe he had the, the, the fuck you message, or maybe it was just a really um, good financial decision that he was willing to sort of take a risk
0: on. Mm, a fair point, a fair point. Well, so Cathay, I mean, I, I wonder if in closing, you could reflect a little bit on what, the tension between the right of publicity or rather the right of integrity and, and fair use can or should tell us about sort of moral rights more generally and what we're trying to accomplish when we do moral rights. Because it seems like that's sort of the backstory of the entire paper for me. I mean, like sort of like what values are we trying to realize and how does the tension that you're illuminating sort of help us better understand how we should think about those values?
1: Right. Um, I, I do think the message I want to send is that there needs to be sort of a fair, that there needs to be a fair balance. Um, I, I know that that I, um, I don't want to use this and I was trying to be clear in, in the article, at least that I, I don't want to use this piece as saying we need to eliminate right of integrity because it absolutely conflicts with um, free expression and also didn't really want to use this piece to try to fix fair use doctrine. Right. I've many, plenty of people have worked on diff- fixes and criticisms of or, or not criticisms of fair use doctrine. And that really wasn't the point of this piece either. Um, I wanted to look at the importance of, right, the uh, the dignity type rights in in people's work and yet understand that there has to be limits just like copyright has limits. The right integrity has to have limits as well. Just like you can use words to criticize someone, you should also potentially be able to use their works of art to criticize or comment upon their works or comment or criticize um, the the, the authors of those works. Um, And and really wanted to contemplate sort of how this defense without changing it as it's currently being applied and interpreted by courts, how it can and should potentially limit um, moral right of integrity, especially if we are seriously discussing in considering expanding moral rights in the US. I don't think we can do that responsibly, expand moral rights in the US responsibly, without really starting a very serious discussion about how fair use would apply and whether fair use is enough to safeguard free expression and secondary users, as well as the public's right to expression, um, if we are to expand the right right of integrity as well as moral rights generally.
0: Mm Well. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is a great conversation. I really enjoyed this paper a lot, and it got me thinking, obviously. And um, I'm really looking forward to reading more of your work on the subject in the future.
1: Thank you, Brian. It's been great chatting. Lightly. Now he knew how to tangle and dance the fandango, but he never learned to fight Woo-woo! <laughs>
0: Your time, Heather. Now there once lived a bee, a magnificent bee, who was feeling so chuck full of vigor that he got out of hand and he stung Ferdinand with his sharp little thing of a jigger. Now Ferdinand was a so herd, he was pawing the dirt, when a bold picador chanced to sight him. Ah, the picador cried, as a matter of pride, I'll get out my stiletto and I'll fight him. Ferdinand, 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 Ferdinand! He smiled when the picador faced him, Ferdinand! Ferdinand. When the picador missed him Why, Ferdinand kissed me For he never learned to fight (coughs)
1: Woo-woo!